Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. these two things can be true. The Houthis are arguably the only Arab state taking meaningful, tangible, and consequential action to stop the violence in Gaza, but they're also autocratic, extremist, corrupt, and probably not acting in the interests of peace or humanitarianism. Hello and welcome to Behind the Lines. I'm Arthur Snell. Repeated airstrikes by the US and UK against the Houthis in Yemen have failed to slow their attacks on ships. Earlier this week, a Houthi-launched cruise missile came within a mile of a US naval destroyer and the group has vowed to target US and UK naval vessels in addition to commercial shipping. Whilst the Houthis' power doesn't extend much beyond their immediate neighborhood, their targeting of international shipping is still seen as the only serious effort in the Arab world to stand up for Palestinians' rights. Is it time for some new strategies regarding the Houthis and Yemen? To try to get some answers to these difficult questions, I spoke to Laura Kretney, who is a social entrepreneur, an academic, an expert in Yemen and diaspora communities in the Middle East, and also works in international development. Thank you very much for having me, Arthur. It's great to be back with you. Laura, we've spoken in the past about Yemen, and of course it's a country we both know reasonably well from our different work, myself as a diplomat, you as an international development uh, consultant. Uh, but we haven't spoken since the most recent events and the question of the Houthis sort of inserting themselves into the wider Middle East crisis associated with Israel and Palestine. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of basic questions that still remain about Yemen. And perhaps the most basic one of all is that question of whether Yemen is ungovernable. Is, is it a country that can function? This is a really interesting question, Arthur. And I think it actually tells us a lot about the ways that Yemen has been mischaracterized and misrepresented in the Western media and really misunderstood as a result. 
So there's this image of Yemen as being this ungovernable, unruly place without law and order. And it's a really very simplistic and orientalist stereotype that actually ignores a lot of Yemen's history. So as you know, Yemen is one of the world's oldest centers of civilization with this wealth of history and culture that you still see today in its architecture, its cultural traditions, its music. And even as recently as 10 years ago, we saw Yemenis take to the streets to protest demanding freedom and opportunity and representation and democratic democratic governance. We yeah. saw this national dialogue process where educated people, women and youth came together to set out an alternative vision for the future of their country. But this idea that Yemen is ungovernable, ungovernable has come from images we've seen of the country over the last 20 years, which are of Western drone strikes killing terrorists in the desert during the war on terror and AK-47 wielding militias waging war over the last 10 years. And Yemen does face huge political and governance challenges, yes, but these are a product of context. They're a product of the country's history of colonialism and state capture by an authoritarian government. And of course, I'm talking about the government of Ali Abdullah Saleh, who compared yeah. ruling Yemen to dancing on the heads of snakes. And Ali Abdullah Saleh built these complex systems of patronage, which laid different political and military and tribal factions off against one another and made them dependent on him and his inner circle. And it's also a product of the intervention of neighboring countries. And I'm talking predominantly about Saudi Arabia, whose policy towards Yemen for decades was to keep Yemen just stable enough that it didn't pose a security threat on their border, but never quite strong or prosperous enough to compete with the kingdom. It's a product of the co-optation of the national dialogue process that I mentioned before and the subsequent eight years of civil war, which have decimated the country, created an entirely unavoidable humanitarian crisis and entrenched this war economy whereby politics is a marketplace governed by the highest bidders. So this idea of ungovernability is not something that's inherent to the Yemeni people. It's that political marketplace that makes Yemen so difficult to govern. Yeah, I I can certainly um, uh, agree with the the point about the the context and the the ways in which Yemen has been um, treated both by its neighbours and and you know in in a slightly longer period by sort of colonial powers. But I suppose one of the challenges is that it's quite hard to find um, the period of stability in in recent terms. So clearly, Yemen has a as as you've already said, and you know, a remarkable long history and, and one of the first sort of settled parts of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, but obviously you have the story of North and South Yemen, you have the unification. Not long after that, there was a civil war. Uh, prior mm. to the unification, there was a lot of instability in in both the, the previous uh North and South Yemens. Um so in a way, I suppose it. Is it fair to say that it, it's quite difficult to find the sort of the the case study or, or the moment of stability which we could perhaps draw from and 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 try to build on if if we want Yemen to have a more stable future? It's interesting. It's interesting that you bring up the North South divide because. I have spoken to a lot of Yemenis from the South who would actually point 
to the history, the recent history of southern Yemen before unification as that period of stability. Um, yeah. And as you know, that that unification process between North and South Yemen was flawed from the get go. And there are many in the South who feel like the North has been attempting to dominate the South for decades, if not longer. Yeah. Um, so I think, again, what you're pointing to here is that historical context, which has made Yemen so difficult to govern. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, the uh, perhaps a, a, another context there is is this point about um, external uh, intervention. So as you, you, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, and, and that's obviously been at the forefront in recent years. But of course, um, I'm, I'm always surprised at how little people in Britain seem aware that that Aden and the surrounding territory, which, you know, subsequently was known as South Yemen, uh, it was one of the longest running British colonies. And, and it's odd, we, we don't hear much about that these days. Mm, absolutely. And in fact, Yemen has been called the graveyard of empires because so many, so many colonial powers have intervened in Yemen and ultimately not succeeded and had to leave the country. It's really interesting, actually, at the moment, uh, one of the things that I've noticed online in some of the social media content relating to the US and UK airstrikes is uh, people are sharing images of uh, British colonial rule in Yemen and almost comparing the two. So comparing what's happening now to that British colonial period in Aden in the south of Yemen. And they're saying we don't want the British to come back and colonize us again. Um, and so it just gives you a bit of an indication of the sentiment among Yemenis. And this includes Yemenis actually based in the West towards the UK as a result of that complicated history. Yeah, indeed. And and your mention there of the graveyard of empires, one of the things that's fascinating about the, the last days in in Aden or Aden, as, as Yemenis would call it, um, is that the, the Brits had planned to leave uh, on, on New Year's Eve as a sort of, you know, standard end of year thing. And they ended up leaving a few weeks early because they just couldn't sustain the losses that they were taking. You know, this mm -hmm. this major imperial power, the losses that they were taking from uh, from the sort of insurgent um effectively liberation fighters that that you know sought sought to to gain independence so it's a it's an example of a of an empire that was really giving up in that period um but i wanted i wanted to uh move on really and um and just uh, briefly touch on uh the the southern separatist movement as it currently exists in yemen because it's something that again hasn't really been talked about very much uh, but it's it's a very important part of the dynamic. We we talk a lot about the Houthis, and we're going to go on to talk about the Houthis. But a lot of people don't really take on board the degree to which what is called the Southern Transitional Council has become influential and 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 rather powerful on the ground in Yemen. So perhaps you could say a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. The Southern Transitional Council, or the STC, um, has existed in Yemen for a long time. There have, there have, for decades, there have been calls for the South to secede from uh, what was United Yemen from the early 90s. So there have been those seeds of separatist sentiment existing in the South for a long time. 
the STC has been emboldened by the conflict over the last 10 years. However, it would be uh, misrepresentative to present the STC as as representing the whole of South Yemen. So South yeah. Yemen is geographically is geographically very large and there are governorates towards the east of the country like Hadramaut and Al-Mahra, which are quite kind of geographically, politically, culturally distinct. Um, and so the dynamics there are really complicated and there are a lot of other um, forces and militias aside from the STC present in South Yemen. So in that yeah. sense, it's really very complicated when you look at um, the potential future of South Yemen and what that might look like, even if the country were to divide into two, um, which many would argue has already happened or is already kind of de facto the case on the ground, that there are two Yemens. You know, there are two Yemeni currencies. There are two uh, different governments essentially now in Yemen. And so in many ways, uh, many people would say that the division of the country has already happened. Yeah, and interestingly, though that division, uh, whilst not a hundred percent, adheres relatively closely to the the previous borders. So that you've got the area in the north currently largely controlled by the Houthis, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 the the those two areas of Yemen at the moment largely um, cohere to to the the previous borders of North and South Yemen prior to the unification. We we've skirted around it a bit, but let let's talk about the Houthis. And and one of the things I was keen to to sort of explore with you, Laura, is actually uh, the the evolution of the Houthis over the period, because it's now quite a long time since they seized power in Sanaa at the end of 2014. Um, and a lot of people have heard this story of the origin of this movement of the. The, the sort of family that were associated with their uh, ancestral connection to Zaydism and 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 their their, their kind of uh, strong power base in in Sada, but up in the north of the country. But actually, we we've got ten years now of the Houthis controlling the capital of Yemen and controlling a, a lot of the territory. And and in a way, uh, that bit of the story perhaps needs a bit more telling. So perhaps you could sort of guide the listeners through some of that. Absolutely. I think this is a really important question, Arthur, because what we've seen in the last few weeks uh, since the Houthis have been attacking shipping in the Red Sea is everybody's asking, who are the Houthis? Where do they come from? What do they want? And we're seeing a lot of people talking about the history of the movement and the ideological underpinnings of the movement um, and the six wars that happened against the Houthis um, in the northern governorate of Saada, where they came from, which are some of the things that that you and Jason unpacked in the last episode of the podcast, the, the podcast, which was really great. But I think it's also really important to look at who the Houthis are today, because you're absolutely right. The movement has evolved significantly over the last decade since they came down from the mountains and took control of the capital, Sana'a, in a coup that would then spark the civil war. First of all, as you've mentioned, I think it's really important to distinguish uh, between the Houthi family or tribe, which obviously formed the origins of the movement, and the political and military entity that we refer to today as the Houthis, um, but whose official name is Ansarullah, which means party of God. And that entity has undergone a significant structural evolution over the last 10 years. You can look at its evolution on various levels. Um, So on a structural level, 
um, the last 10 years have fundamentally reshaped Ansar Allah. So what they did, what Ansar Allah did when they captured Sana'a with the support of former President Ali Abdullah Saleh was they essentially took over the existing government ministries and structures and they created this network of what they called supervisors who were mm. loyalists to the Houthi movement to oversee the running of these ministries. Yeah. So they essentially took over the existing state structures. So they went from being this militia in the mountains with guerrilla war, war fighting capabilities to having at their disposal what were essentially the mechanisms of governance um, of the Yemeni state. And as I've mentioned before, those mechanisms of government of governance also encapsulate those patronage networks that Ali Abdullah Saleh had spent decades building. And this has enabled them to somewhat govern the populations under their control um, and also to extract revenues from those populations through taxation and access to state resources. Yeah. Now, the movement has also evolved on an ideological level. Um, so you talked last time about Zaidi Shiaism, and you mentioned the really important differences between uh, the Zaidi Shia and 12 Shiaism, which is practiced in Iran, um, and gave some really great insights into why it's so problematic to label Yemen's war as a sectarian one, um, and why it's actually much more complex than that. However, it's also really important to note here that over the last 10 years, while Zaidi Shiaism is distinct from 12 Shiaism, the Houthis themselves, with in their religious establishment have been leaning closer ideologically to the Shiism that is the hallmark of the Islamic Republic. Yep. And in a way, this has sort of become this self-fulfilling prophecy, if you like, that's arisen as a result of the increased military and ideological cooperation between the Houthis and not just Iran, but also other Iranian Shia proxies in the region like Hezbollah and Lebanon. And then in terms of their military capability, this has also evolved over the last decade to the extent that uh, the Houthis are considerably more powerful today militarily than they were when they took control of Sana'a in 2014 and began expanding across the north of the country. And again, yeah. we've got this self-fulfilling prophecy um, in that there's been very little evidence to suggest that Iran was the driving force behind the coup in 2014, despite claims to the contrary, particularly from Saudi Arabia. However, the war against the Houthis from 2015 onwards has ultimately pushed them much closer to Iran, which massively stepped up its support for the movement, uh, which it saw as a relatively low cost, low risk way to expand its influence in the region and also to embroil Saudi Arabia in what quickly became a very messy and intractable conflict on its southern border. So if we yeah. fast forward to today, what we have is this somewhat disproportionately powerful movement who control approximately a third of Yemeni territory, which is home to around 70 to 80 percent of the country's population. And this is a force that has not been defeatable by airstrikes over the last eight, nearly nine years and has actually been significantly emboldened by the conflict. Yeah. Indeed. And I mean, that that's a fascinating sort of exposition. You 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 talked about sort of government, you do you, you talked about ideology, and you talked about their military strength. Um, I, I, I wanted to just sort of dig into a, a few of those. So in, in terms of the government, um, it's I've heard it said that the um, that, you know, for example, civil servants in, in Yemen, you know, aren't, aren't being paid that there's, there's quite a lot of um, uh, you know, there's quite an absence of sort of functionality 
in in these government institutions. So is is that how how does that sort of um, square up with this idea that the Houthis kind of took on or took over, if you like, the government structures that 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 had existed under the Ali Abdullah Saleh regime? Mm. So the lack of salaries, the payment of salaries has been um, has been an issue throughout the course of the conflict. And what the Houthis have done is they have been uh, they've been fighting a war and they've been using their resources to fight that war. And so they have not been prioritizing things like paying the salaries of government employees. Um, and on the one hand, this has become a sticking point in the peace process uh, and the ongoing negotiations between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia. Um, and something that the Houthis have frequently demanded is that the government of Yemen um, and or Saudi Arabia pays those salaries, um, which they see as effectively funding the Houthis. So it's become a sticking point in that process. But it also alludes to a really important dynamic um, of how the Houthis govern. The Houthis are not equipped to govern during peacetime. The Houthis have succeeded thus far, thus far during wartime. They've been fighting a war, and so they have been able to get away with a lot more, essentially, yeah. than they would if they were governing during peacetime, um, including not paying the salaries of their employees. Yeah. Um, and... In, in that sense, I think that takes us on to sort of a, a related political question, which is really, uh, and of course, it's very hard to tell these things from the outside. You're in a war situation. We're, we're not talking about a kind of liberal democracy by any means. But in the areas that they control, which, as, as you've noted, is is most of the Yemen's population, and, and that's, that's, again, a, a number that is definitely above 20 million people, um what is what's your best understanding of how they are perceived their popularity or otherwise mm. I think it's important to remember here that the the Yemeni people the people living in Houthi controlled territory have been suffering the consequences of the war for the last 9 years they've been suffering the consequences of the aerial bombardment by the Saudi led coalition and so I think it's really important to remember that the concerns of the people on the ground are likely to be concerns around survival, access to resources, access to opportunities, and are generally speaking more pragmatic than, um, than the way that we might perceive the Houthis and their legitimacy as a governing force outside of Yemen. Obviously, I can't speak on behalf of Yemenis. But I think this idea of legitimacy is something that's been really fascinating to watch actually over the last few weeks. Um, so since the Houthis began launching these attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and what they claim is an attack on Israel, uh, we've seen huge protests in support of what they're doing and in support by extension of the Palestinian cause and the people of Gaza in Sana'a, in Yemen. And we've also seen um, a huge impact on the Houthis' legitimacy internationally. Um, and we've actually been seeing the pro-Palestinian movement has sort of adopted the Houthis as heroes of their cause. And not only that, but these pro-Palestine influencers are using language to refer to the Houthis as Yemen or the Yemeni state. So I'm sure you've seen uh, on social media, my Instagram has been flooded with these kinds of posts saying things like, Yemen is the only Arab state standing up against Israel. Yemen halted global shipping in support of Gaza. Yemen stood against genocide by challenging Israel. 
And of yeah. course they're talking about the Houthis, um, but they're only, and they're, they're glorifying the Houthis as heroes of Palestinian liberation. But it's also like overnight, the Houthis have gone from being this, as you said last week, ragtag militia from the mountains in the north, um, which is long how they've been described by many in the West, to being Yemen or being the state of Yemen, which is super bizarre and kind of mind blowing for someone, for people like us who have been following this conflict in Yemen over the last 10 years. But then in many ways, also totally understandable, you know, there is this feeling that the world has abandoned Gaza, has abandoned the Palestinians, especially in the Middle East and the Arab diaspora. There's a huge amount of anger and there's this perception, understandably, that the world is standing idly by while Israel is killing tens of thousands of innocent people and injuring and displacing hundreds of thousands more. So you can understand why people see what the Houthis are doing and throwing their support behind them. But the dangerous thing with that is that most of the people who are touting them as heroes don't actually seem to know very much about who the Houthis are and how they govern in Yemen. Um, but yeah. these posts are going viral and it's been a huge PR win for the Houthis. And all of a sudden, the world is talking about them, which yes. I think highlights a couple of really important things. One, I think the fact that a group like the Houthis, which are widely known to be responsible for systematic and systemic human rights abuses in Yemen, including the recruitment of child soldiers, the forced disappearance of critics and journalists and activists, abuses against women's rights. Um, you know, they just sentenced a female activist to death on what are believed to be bogus charges and after an unfair trial. I think the fact that a movement like this are being lauded as heroes shows that the international systems and normative frameworks that are supposed to prevent the likes of what's happening in Gaza and guarantee justice and accountability are not working. And it demonstrates that people have lost faith in their governments and in the international system, and they're looking for someone to stand for justice and accountability and freedom from oppression and colonialism. And I also think this highlights this bizarre world we're living in of Instagram and TikTok and short attention spans and polarization and radicalization, where yeah. the complex realities are not captured in an infographic or a 30 second reel or a 10 second soundbite. And social yeah. media is kind of simplifying things that shouldn't necessarily be simplified. You know, these two things can be true. The Houthis are arguably the only Arab state taking meaningful, tangible and consequential action to stop the violence in Gaza. But they're also autocratic, extremist, corrupt and probably not acting in the interest of peace or humanitarianism. No. I mean, I think there's there's a lot there. Certainly, this this aspect of the the social media nature of it is is so important because what we're talking about there really is what the Houthis have come to mean for people uh, in the wider world, both in the Arab world, but also people in 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 the world at large who, uh, for whatever reason, feel that they identify with a kind of resistance mindset a a um you know a, a sort of that the, mm. they care about the rights of palestinians these people aren't aren't taking an interest in what the houthis are doing in yemen because that for them the houthis are a useful element of their understanding of of what's happening in in israel and palestine albeit perhaps not an accurate one no absolutely i was just going to go back to your your question before about 
uh, how the Houthis are perceived in terms of their legitimacy within Yemen. Um, I can speak more to how they're perceived by Yemenis outside of Yemen. Um, yeah. I obviously don't want to speak on behalf of Yemenis, but from what I've heard from my community, my friends and my colleagues, uh, Yemeni friends and colleagues in the diaspora, it's there are some really mixed feelings about this, about what's happening from Yemenis. So on the one hand, from some people, you're seeing this almost this sense of pride and satisfaction to see Yemenis, regardless of whether it's the Houthis or whether it's, you know, the individual Yemenis protesting in Sana'a, to see Yemenis as the heroes, as being portrayed as the heroes after being ignored and overlooked for so so long. You know, we hear about Yemen's forgotten war, the humanitarian crisis and the famine, which received a fraction of the attention from the Western media and the international community compared with, for example, the conflict in Syria, which was given considerably more attention in the West, at least largely due to the implications for Western countries caused by the refugee crisis. But then at the same time, I'm also seeing a lot of Yemenis who are warning, one, that the Houthis should not be glorified and highlighting the human rights abuses that I mentioned before, and two, that they shouldn't be underestimated. You know, eight years of airstrikes only served yeah. to embolden them. And I think that there's a lot of fear now from Yemenis in the diaspora, at least from what I've seen among my community, about what comes next and what the fallout will be for Yemen. Um, yeah. The fact is, the Houthis' legitimacy is at an all-time high right now, both inside and outside of Yemen. And the implications of that for both the future of Yemen and the wider region really can't be underestimated. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the elements of this is that, as we both know, uh, for a long time, Yemen was literally the poor relation of the Arab world, you know, the poorest country in the Arab world, a country not blessed with hydrocarbon resources, or certainly not on a large scale. Um, and many Arabs had quite patronizing uh, views, or not many, just Arabs, you know, many people uh, around the world had quite patronizing views of Yemenis. So you've now got this mm -hmm. movement which has had a geopolitically significant impact way beyond its its the country's borders, and Absolutely. and clearly, you know that 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 changes people's uh, sense of what this country is. Mm, absolutely. And I've been seeing um, online, for example, 
uh, in the Gulf. You know, people are expressing their support for their Yemeni brothers um, and that narrative on Yemen has kind of shifted. I think it's interesting as well. You mentioned um, that they've kind of been the the, the poor state of the region. Mm-hmm. Um, what they're doing right now, you know, they're not they don't have necessarily super sophisticated weaponry. Their, their arsenal is derived from largely from the former arsenals, arsenals of the Yemeni government, government that they've captured during the war, as well as some equipment and weapons that have come from Iran. But instead, their advantage that they're exploiting here is their geographical position on the Red Sea in proximity yeah. to the Bab al-Mandab Strait. So what they're doing here is not necessarily particularly strategically sophisticated or well-resourced, and yet they still have this huge strategic advantage. And in terms of the outcome for them, for the Houthis, these attacks are a win-win scenario for them. I mean, let's say on the one hand, the international community did bow down to the pressure they're putting on shipping and push for a ceasefire and an end to the war in Gaza. The Houthis will present this as a victory. You know, they saved the people of Gaza. They forced some of the most powerful countries in the world to back down. But then on the other hand, if the US and the UK continue to launch airstrikes on Yemen and push Yemen into a new phase of the conflict, This will then enable the Houthis to rally support around their cause even more and to continue the war, which is in their interest for a number of reasons. Firstly, because as we mentioned already, governing during wartime is very different to governing during peacetime. Um, And over the last nine years as a wartime government, the Houthis have been exempt from a number of the expectations that would be placed on them if there were a political settlement. And then in addition to that, uh, the Houthis can also use this to try again to seize territory in the governorates, for example, of Ma'rib and Shabwa, which are two governorates in Yemen, which contain the majority of the country's oil reserves. So if they're to capture these areas, then this will not only empower them economically by giving them access to resources, but also strengthens their position in the ongoing uh, negotiations with Saudi Arabia. So it's really a win-win situation for the Houthis. Yeah. I mean, one of the questions, um, I, I want to come back to talking about the the sort of US-UK uh, airstrikes and, and where that takes us. But just one of the questions about Yemen itself is, of course, there's for years, um, well, since the, the Houthi takeover of Sana'a, there's been this talk about uh, the the so-called internationally recognized government of Yemen. Um, and that's that's evolved heavily and and bluntly, it it is not a government that uh controls uh a country called Yemen. Um it, it's no, powers on it necessarily the... recognized <laughs> well, by right. many people. Yeah, and and also I mean it it's its legitimacy is based on a fairly complicated backstory about um where the uh where you know where where the the evolution that the, the very complex post arab spring political settlement that was argued over for for years by different um elements of of sort of yemeni society and and leadership so i mean there is a, seems to be a perfectly reasonable question uh as to you know the the, the houthis because when we hear people say referring to the Houthis as Yemen, the government of Yemen, the you know the the leaders of Yemen, in a way, you know that they've got they've got a reasonable claim. One might argue, certainly for 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 the areas which they control, which is you know as mm. you told us, most of the population. 
Mm, absolutely. And I think actually um, that people are uh, jumping so quickly to referring to the Houthis as Yemen and as the state of Yemen really just speaks to that illegitimacy that that it, it's not even occurring to people that they're not the government, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, when we look at, at the, the internationally recognized government over the last 10 years, they've been a government in exile. They haven't even yeah. been governing inside of Yemen. And they do suffer from a huge lack of legitimacy on the ground. Um, and one of the reasons for that was the sort of pro pro problematic uh, personality that was Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi, um, who, who very much lacked legitimacy. And then he was replaced by this presidential leadership council, um, which was supposed to be representative of the various uh, political and military factions fighting across the country outside yeah. of the Houthis. Um, but then since that, since the formation of the of the Presidential Leadership Council, you've seen infighting and disputes between the different factions, um, which a lot of people anticipated when it was formed that, you know, this would be a struggle and that they would not represent a unified front against the Houthis. So these are just some of the challenges facing that so-called internationally recognized government. Yeah, indeed. Um so we've we've talked about the Houthis and and <laughs> and the the context there. Obviously, um, the, the reason that this has gained such prominence beyond people like you and me who've who've taken a long interest in Yemen it is the strikes on shipping and then the 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 responding U.S. and U.K. airstrikes. And I guess there's a few questions there. One is, you know, there seems to be quite a consensus. Uh, that the airstrikes on their own will not be sufficient to deter the Houthis and, and may not even be able to uh, deny them the, the, the weapons and other um, you know, resources they need to continue to strike shipping. And certainly mm. the evidence suggests that that is the case, that the, that the attacks have gone on. So uh, my first question on that is, well, what's your view on these airstrikes are they are they a kind of meaningless gesture i think actually president biden answered that question himself um in a recent uh a recent video clip that's been going around online which i'm sure you've seen um where somebody asks him uh whether the strikes against the houthis are achieving their goals and he responded he said something like um, have the airstrikes stopped the Houthi attacks on the Red Sea? No. Will the airstrikes continue? Yes. And so you're left thinking, what on earth are they trying to achieve here? You know, anybody who's who's watched Yemen over the last few years, we've seen eight years of, of aerial bombardment that has only served to embolden the Houthis. So you can understand why uh, the US and the UK and their allies feel like they need to respond and to do something. But it's very, very difficult to see on a strategic level what they think they're going to achieve here um, because it only seems to be working in the Houthis' favor. And it's really fascinating if you've been following Yemen over the last few years, you know, we've seen Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen and the US urging restraint. And now we're seeing the opposite. The US is bombing Yemen and it's Saudi Arabia that is warning the US and urging restraint. Uh, the implications for Yemen and the wider region um, are potentially disastrous. I mean, on the one, on the humanitarian level, uh, the attacks have been occurring, that people are very concerned that the attacks are, con uh, are occurring near civilian areas. Um, if this opens a new phase in the war, it will likely also open a new phase in Yemen's dire humanitarian crisis. 
there were statistics from the EU uh, from 2023 um, that 21.6 million people in Yemen, so that's 67% of the population, needed humanitarian assistance and protection services. More than 4.5 million have been displaced, often multiple times over the last 10 years, and close to 17 million people faced acute food insecurity. Um, the Houthis also recently announced uh, their intent to expel dual nationals, um, so those uh, Yemenis who also hold American or British nationality, um, which will disproportionately affect uh, those Yemenis working with international NGOs, which will further um, which will increase the severity of the, the humanitarian fallout. Um, and on a regional level as well, these airstrikes risk further destabilizing an already um, very precarious uh, situation in the region. The yeah. Houthi, yes, they pose a big danger um, in terms of the control that they're, they're showing that they have over shipping in the Red Sea. But they also, as we've mentioned, control over 70 to 80% of the Yemeni population um, who are watching what's happening in Gaza and becoming radicalized, like people all over the region and all over the world. Um, and this is creating this antagonism and this resentment and even hatred of the West in Yemen and elsewhere in the region. And it's just mind blowing to watch. You would think that these governments had learned their lessons about the dangers of this, of the dangers of polarization and radicalization from you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, but apparently they have not. Yeah, I suppose that the difficulty is, and, and I, I um, you know, I certainly uh, share your concerns about the the humanitarian crisis that Yemen has experienced, and of course, um, that is something that that Britain and America contributed heavily to by backing the Saudis' uh, war in in Yemen. Um, but it seems to me that the difficulty is that you know, international shipping is one of those things that that requires. Uh, global security, you know the the sort of principles of of the of global trade depend very heavily on sea lanes being open and 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 being um, you know secure. And when you have a a group that partly, as as you've identified already, thanks to its sort of luck of geography, um, is is able to. Uh, have a major impact on international shipping, but by by striking at various uh, uh, you know vessels, uh, it's it would be quite difficult, would it not, if if global powers were to say, well, you know, please don't do that again, and and just sort of carry on. So what you know, I suppose that the the options available to the US in particular, were, were rather limited in, in this context. So, I mean, I'm very happy for you to disagree. I'm, I'm just interested what mm -hmm. you think of that. No, I absolutely agree that, that the options were limited and I can totally see why the US and the UK feel like they had no option but to do something. I think the question is, what should that thing be? Um, yeah. And I think here it's really important to pause and recognize as well, as you've mentioned, it's not just the US and the UK and their allies who are being affected by this. You know, this is going to massively affect China, which relies on shipping through the Red Sea. Um, it also hugely affects countries like uh, countries in the region. It affects Egypt, uh, which derives a huge amount of uh, revenue from uh, safe passage from the Suez, through the Suez Canal through taxation. And so I think what we should be looking at is what diplomatic options are available as opposed to plunging a country like Yemen into another humanitarian crisis with seemingly little impact. Yeah, 
I I I couldn't agree more. And and ultimately, you know, the the Houthis are painted as this kind of isolated fanatical group, and maybe some elements of that description could be said to be appropriate. But ultimately, if no one's actually talking to them and just sort of the, the saber rattling continues and, and and you end up in this sort of escalatory uh, scenario. Um, let, let's talk finally, because I know it's an area of expertise. It's the area of your, your doctoral thesis about the role of diasporas. Um, partly because of conflict, there are huge diasporas across the Middle East and huge Middle Eastern diasporas in the wider world. Um, what, how, how is that affecting this conflict and, and also the, the, the other conflicts, obviously, particularly the, the, the current situation in, in Palestine, Israel-Palestine? Sure. Um, so diasporas can play a really important role in conflict in their homelands. Um, and they can mobilize in homeland conflict in a number of different ways. So they can do this through fundraising, raising finance, um, whether for humanitarian initiatives or development activities, um, and also, you know, to support particular parties to the conflict. Um, diasporas also engage in activities like advocacy and uh, human rights and transitional justice efforts, as well as peace building efforts. Um, and they can also engage in lobbying and can have a huge amount of influence over uh, the foreign policy of their host states um, and rallying around particular causes, particular parties to the conflict, um, and they can play a huge role in shaping narratives internationally around conflict. And one of the yeah. things that's particularly interesting, which we've touched on today, um, which I'm focusing on in my research, is the role of technology and communications and how the explosion of the internet and social media in recent years are affecting how diasporas, first of all, how they identify in relation to their country of origin, um, how they form community and how they mobilize in homeland conflict. And what we're seeing in a way is the line that existed previously between uh, people in diaspora and the people in the homeland is sort of becoming blurred as uh, tools like social media and WhatsApp are kind of reducing that distance or at least that perceived distance between them um, by increasing their exposure to the kind of day-to-day -day life and events in the homeland. You know, they're in constant communication. Um, so for example, in, in Yemen's war, um, Yemenis in the diaspora, thanks to WhatsApp and social media have had constant access to the news and hearing from relatives um, that is in areas where there is internet connectivity in Yemen. Yeah, um, It's also kind of enabling, te these technologies are also enabling the formation of these transnational communities um, in a way that in the past diasporas would have previously been quite localized and tied to their geographical community. Um, so for example, in the UK, you have a very significant Yemeni diaspora in the UK um, and you have big communities in cities like Liverpool and Sheffield, Cardiff, Birmingham, um, that have traditionally been quite localized uh, within yes. those geographical areas. Nowadays, thanks to social media, um, particularly younger people are forming their communities very differently based on different things. So I've been speaking to Yemenis who would describe their kind of closest Yemeni community as people who perhaps agree with them on political issues or um, share their ideas around things like social conservatism and liberalism and what would have once been their local physical geographical community is now a transnational community of Yemenis around the world. And this is 
This is facilitating different ways that diasporas can mobilize in conflict in the homeland. Um, diasporas are often better placed to grow online platforms on social media. You know, they can speak the language of policymakers and donors and stakeholders. Um, they have access to resources in their host states that they might not otherwise. Um, but they can also leverage their connectivity with people on the ground in the homeland. Um, However, that, this can also mean that they're more vulnerable uh, to manipulation and attack. So, for example, one of the things that I've observed in my research is um, a lot of Yemeni women who have been engaged in pro-peace activities, peace-building activities, um, and lobbying for peace in Yemen have faced attacks online, bullying, harassment, death threats. You know, people have had their computers hacked and their photos stolen and, and shared online. Um, mm. So as well as creating opportunities um, for diasporas to engage in conflict and peace building in their homelands, it's also creating risks. Um, and those risks are disproportionately affecting women. We're seeing some examples of all of this today in the case of Palestine and what's happening in Gaza. Um, the Palestinian diaspora have are, are you know well known to be one of the world's most active diasporas because yeah. of the history, um, the history of migration, the his the history of displacement of Palestinians from Palestine, and we're seeing them today playing a huge role um, in countries around the world in organizing, in uh, protesting, lobbying governments in their host states, and now as we've discussed today, we're even fascinatingly seeing the Palestinian diaspora shaping narratives around the conflict in Yemen through this viral social media content. Um, so this is something that the international community, international policymakers and donors and peace builders really need to understand. You know, they need to understand the way that diasporas are functioning and mobilizing in the digital age. Yeah. And and one of one of the fascinating elements of this is that traditionally, um, diaspora communities uh, have often been subjected to a sort of top-down control both you know you have self-appointed community leaders but you often also have the, the the home state trying to exercise control whether it's sort of through sinister agents or, or through through more you know uh, classic means of kind of organizations and so on whereas what what you're describing there is something where it, it's much more sort of bottom up and kind of crowdsourced in, in the way that that social media tends to work. But are, are then the the more kind of classic hierarchy still trying to sort of reach in and exercise that control? Mm. I think there's a real tendency or there's been a tendency, I think, since the Arab Spring, really, and since 2011, <clears throat> to look at social media as this kind of democratizing force that's an answer to all of these problems. Um, and I think we have to be really careful in the way that we think about that. As you said, yes, it is giving people, um, giving people the ability to organize in different ways and um, to kind of perhaps escape some of those traditional uh, mechanisms and hierarchies of control. But different kinds of mechanisms are used um, are available thanks to these platforms as well. Um, so it's just changing the dynamics slightly. In the case of Yemen, for example, um, one of the things that I've witnessed through my research is that um, narratives of the conflict that are pro-peace or that are not aligned with a particular side have been squeezed out on social media. Um, individuals who uh, lobbied for peace have been attacked online to the point that um, many do not see 
um, social media, at least their pu public platform, as being a safe space for them to engage in that way anymore. And instead, what uh, what some people have said that they see on social media now is um, either a pro-Houthi camp or an anti-Houthi camp, um, and very little in the middle. And often that is still to do with uh, similar kind of opportunity structures and barriers relating to funding and political influence that did exist in those um, kind of physical communities, but have almost been taken online and are reforming themselves in the digital age. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's a fascinating sort of transformation that we're witnessing. So I, we're coming towards the end of our time, and I, I wanted to try to just look ahead a little. And um, uh, we've, we've, talked about the degree to which the Houthis feel that they've gained legitimacy, that the, their resilience, the fact that probably airstrikes alone are, are not going to stop them from doing what they're doing. Um, is there a diplomatic initiative? Is is this a, a moment for, for a country such as Qatar to step up or, or other countries in the region that, that have relations with the Houthis that, that perhaps we've heard less about? Uh, that may be able to to um, try to sort of damp down this particular element of what is obviously a, a much wider conflict. Mm. I think it will be really interesting to see how uh, the negotiations between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia progress. Um, because as I'm sure you know, before um, these attacks began in the Red Sea, uh, it was widely understood that the Houthis in Saudi Arabia were nearing some kind of agreement or some kind of settlement to end the conflict in Yemen. Now, yeah. obviously, that does not necessarily mean that the end of conflict, the end of violence and a return, if you can say a return to some kind of stability across Yemen for, for fa due to factors that we've mentioned today. Um, but one would have expected that these negotiations would have stopped in their tracks as a result of what's happening now. However, yeah. there are indications that they are still continuing. Um, so it'll be really, really interesting to see how they progress and if perhaps they might offer some kind of an avenue towards a diplomatic solution to what's happening. Yeah, well, we can only hope in the context of what is now a, a, effectively a regional conflict, albeit perhaps not at the scale that some have feared, but clearly a very serious one. We can only hope that that, that takes uh, mm. some form it's a of very, shape. Very optimistic view. <laughs> yes. Um, the of course, uh, you know, the, the pessimistic view is that this spirals out of control and um, and also worsens the other developing sort of diplomatic uh, encounter, which is the one between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So what finally, what's your sense of how that is affected by this particular um, aspect of the conflict? I actually think that of, of everything that we've discussed today, this is perhaps what gives me the most reason to hope in that neither Saudi Arabia nor Iran want to see this erupt into a global, into, into a regional conflict or a direct confrontation between them. Um, and this is why we're seeing Iran, everything that Iran is doing is through its, its proxies in the region. It doesn't want an all out direct confrontation with the United States, with Saudi Arabia um, on its own soil. Um, and we've seen the kind of warming of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran over the last year, which has been really, really fascinating to watch um, in light of recent history, 
between the two countries. Um, and so I think actually that somehow gives me more hope than everything else that we've discussed today, Arthur. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's hold out on that. And Laura, thank you so much for talking to me and covering such a, a wide range of complex issues. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Lines. Please subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you've enjoyed it, why not give us a positive review? Behind the Lines was produced and presented by me, Arthur Snell, and the excellent theme tune is by Matty Benbrook.